My wife, Rochelle, loves HGTV. I don't know if there's any other fans out there of, of HGTV. And uh, one show in particular that she really loves is uh, Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with that show, uh, Chip and Joanna, they help a couple or family pick a house that needs some work, a fixer-upper, and they, during that episode, they kind of dive into it and begin uh, to renovate that house. And at near the end of, of every episode, after they've kind of done all the renovation, there's always this big reveal as they bring the, the, the family or couple there to see what, what you know, see their new home. And uh, Chip and Joanna show this large photo of what the house used to look like. And then they pull it back and unveil the brand new house that, that, uh, that the couple is going to receive. And every episode, you know, the, the people that are getting the new house, they're just amazed at the transformation. And the show kind of wraps up um, every episode with a glimpse into the family living life in their new home as they are, are settling into this new place that they've, they've been given. Well, in today's text, we're going to see a big reveal, too. A big reveal of God's house. Uh, we're going to be looking at the tabernacle today, uh, which was the house that God instructed Israel to build. And we're going to see at the end of the passage we're going to read today, God kind of moving into his new home as he comes to live and to dwell among the people of Israel. Uh, today we are finishing up our sermon series on the life of Moses that we've been going through uh, since January. And we're not finishing this series with the end of Moses' life because there's still another 40 years of Moses' life that we would have to go through, um, which are recorded in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so we're going to be wrapping up uh, this, this study of, of the life of Moses by finishing the book of Exodus. Maybe we'll, we'll take a look at the second half of Moses' life sometime down the, down the road in the future. Um, but today we're going to be wrapping up our study with the end of the book of Exodus. And uh, two Sundays, the last two Sundays, what we've been doing, kind of looking at, um, in Exodus 32 and 33, was this incident where Israel began worshiping a golden calf while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the instructions for the tabernacle that we're going to be looking at today. And we saw that as Moses came back down, um, he, he interceded for the people. Uh, he, he interceded to, to, for God not to destroy the people. And then last week we looked at, at this question of would God go with the people to the promised land? Would his presence be with them? And again, Moses interceded for the people and God said, I will go with you. So things kind of were wrapped up you know, at the, at the end of uh, chapter 34 where things are restored. Israel is going to be on their way to the promised land. But the next thing they had to do was to build this tabernacle before they left Mount Sinai. And so in the last chapters in Exodus, Exodus 35 to 40, we read about the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, God gives instructions before the golden calf incident. Then there's a re recording of the actual building of it. Um, and, we, and we read about this, this tabernacle, which is going to function as God's house, the place where God will dwell with the people. So my sermon title this morning is Tabernacle. And we're going to look at the meaning of, of this tabernacle. What, I mean, Exodus, there's a lot of chapters devoted to the description of this tabernacle. What is, what's with this? What's the significance of the tabernacle for Israel? And we're going to look today at how the tabernacle actually points ahead to Jesus and also how it also points ahead to our identity 
as Christians, our identity as the church as well. So our text today, we're going to look at the very last verses in Exodus, Exodus chapter 40. We'll be reading verses 17 to 38 as we we look at the completion of the tabernacle. And as I mentioned, we're going to see this big reveal and then God coming to dwell in his house, in the tabernacle. So Exodus chapter 40, beginning with verse 17, we'll have the verses on the screen um, or you can follow along in your Bibles. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year, exactly one year after the people left Egypt. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, the ark of the covenant, attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. God, as we Look at this, this um, particular thing that you did in Israel of giving them this tabernacle, Lord. And we pray that, it, that you would open our eyes to see the meaning of this tabernacle for Israel, but even more so, Lord, uh, what the meaning of this was as you, for, for us and, and, and as it points ahead to Jesus, um, our tabernacle. And so, Lord, um, speak to us now. Give us open ears and hearts to receive your message uh, to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we focus on... Um, on this topic of the tabernacle uh, today, I want to start with looking at the meaning of the tabernacle. What was the meaning of this tent that God gave to Israel in the first place? Well, the first aspect of um, its meaning 
was that it meant that God would dwell among the people of Israel. That's kind of the heart of what the tabernacle is all about, that God will actually dwell with and among the people. Uh, back in Exodus 25, when, when God called Moses back up the mountain, um, Mount Sinai, for 40 days and 40 nights, before that whole golden calf uh, debacle, uh, God spent a lot of time in those 40 days describing this tabernacle. And he says there to Moses, he says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now this statement was a remarkable statement for God to make to the people. Um, for us, you know, who maybe are familiar with this, it doesn't sound like, oh, that, what, what's the big deal here? But this was significant that God said that he was going to dwell with the people. Um, I want to take a, a zoom way back to the beginning of the Bible. Um, in Genesis 1 and 2, the very beginning where we see the account of, of God creating the world, he placed the first humans, um, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And the significant thing about the Garden of Eden was that it was a place where God dwelt with humanity, where God was there. He was present in the garden. He dwelt with them. But after the fall, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God and decided to go their own way, rebelled, um, chose their own way, they were banished from the garden. God told them they had to leave the garden. And humanity lost the opportunity for God to dwell among them. There was something unique that was happening in the garden that all of a sudden they lost. God was no longer going to be dwelling with humanity. And so from Genesis 3 all the way to this point in Exodus, we see God appearing and speaking to different individuals like Abraham and like Moses. And we see God, you know, with, with, with Israel as he's forming them, he goes before them in a pillar of cloud and in a, in a pillar of, of fire by night. But the idea of God actually dwelling with and among his people in an ongoing, visible way, that was brand new. What God says here, this is revolutionary. He says, I'm going to be with you now. I'm going to actually be in your presence, in, in the midst of you. And so it, in many ways, what God is saying here is that he was going to make a new creation. He's almost kind of starting fresh in a, in a way. He's actually creating a new Garden of Eden. A, a, a traveling Garden of Eden that's going to go with the people, but it's going to be a new place where God is going to dwell with them. I don't have time to go into this today, but there, when you actually look at God's instructions about the tabernacle, um, there are so many parallels in the way that God gives the instructions that parallel Genesis 1 and 2. God has seven creative statements where he says, do this, do this, do this, just like in creation. He says, let there be light, let there be, let there be. There's seven statements. Both both of them end with the Sabbath. Creation ends with God resting on the seventh day. God's instructions for the tabernacle end with the Sabbath. There's many other um, examples of this that I don't have time to go into this morning. But there's something about what God is doing with the tabernacle that's sort of saying, I'm going back to creation. I'm recapturing some of what was, what was lost there. And so when God's glory fills the tabernacle at the end of Exodus 40, what we read, there is this, it's this dramatic culmination of God's plan for Israel that began in the Garden of Eden. There's something about the, the, the end of Exodus. After all of what we've been through, right? Back in Exodus 1, where was Israel? They were slaves in Egypt. And they basically had a sense that, like, where is God? God seemed to be absent. And now, by Exodus 40, they're free. 
and God is with them. God's presence fills the tabernacle. It's amazing when you think about the scope of what God has done um, in, over the course of this book. But there's another aspect of the meaning of the tabernacle. God is going to be dwelling with the people, but at the same time, there is still a separation between God and the people. It's not exactly like Eden. There's still a separation. And you see this um, in many of the aspects of the tabernacle. Uh, here's a visual depiction of the tabernacle that as I was reading it, you know, reading about Moses setting up all these details of how he was setting up the tabernacle, this is kind of a visual representation of what the tabernacle looked like. Um, and as you can see here, there's a courtyard that surrounds the actual tent, the actual tabernacle in the middle. And that courtyard, it was, it was kind of a boundary, right? There was, there's these linen um, curtains that, that blocked it off. There's only one gate, one entrance to go into the, this outer courtyard. And, and inside the actual tabernacle, the only one who could enter that tent were priests. That was it. The regular, you know, the regular, most of the people in Israel, they could not enter into the actual tabernacle. And though inside the tabernacle, there's another kind of visual representation. On the, on the one hand, there was this, this, the initial room was called the holy place. And, and as I read the description, you maybe heard that talked about a table and a lampstand and an altar of incense that happened in this holy place. And that is where the, the priests would enter. And they would enter that regularly, you know, doing different things of, of worship. But as you see, there's this veil that separates the back room, which is called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. And, and in the scripture reading that Kai read earlier from Hebrews, actually the writer of Hebrews talks about this reality that the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies was actually only one person, the high priest. And the high priest even could only enter that room once a year. Only one time in the entire year on the Day of Atonement could this high priest enter into the Holy of Holies. So although God is dwelling with the people in this tabernacle, there are these very sharp boundaries that still separate God from the people. Um, another thing about the, the Holy of Holies was that, as you can see in there, there's, a, there's one article the Ark of the Covenant that was present. And whenever I, think, whenever I hear the Ark of the Covenant, I just can't help but think of Raiders of the Lost Ark with Indiana Jones. Like, that must have been what the Ark looked like, right? Just Because it's in Indiana Jones, which is one of my favorite movies. But, um, but it, there's, there's something about the Ark. And even in that movie, that the holiness, the set-apartness of, of this, um, this place. And the cover of the Ark was called the Mercy Seat, or the Atonement Cover. And that cover, there was something significant about it where God chose to dwell, to have his presence dwell over the ark. It was sort of like his throne as he's enthroned there in the Holy of Holies. And, and what would happen in, in the Holy of Holies, again, was, was, was what we're going to get to in just a moment, where atonement was made, again, at that, at that atonement seat. And so... The reason for the separation that happened between God and the people, though, is the same reason why God said to Israel, you can't come up onto the mountain. If you remember that, when, when God came to Mount Sinai, he had these very strict rules. No one can come up here. Only Moses could come up onto the mountain when he called him up. In a similar way, no one can enter that holy of holies. The reason was because of our sin. Because a holy God who is perfect and set apart and holy cannot dwell with a sinful, imperfect people like us. And so this leads to the last element of the meaning of the tabernacle, 
that one of the things that was required in order for God to dwell among the people of Israel was a way to deal with the people's sin. There needed to be something that would deal with the separation, um, that would deal with the sin. And that's the other aspect of the tabernacle's meaning, which is that there were these sacrifices at the tabernacle, and the sacrifices at the tabernacle dealt with the sin of the people. Um, that's the, the last element of this meaning. In the courtyard of the tabernacle, um, again, in the reading that I read, it mentioned this bronze altar. And this altar in, the, in that outer courtyard was used to offer up burnt offerings to the Lord. Uh, the book of Leviticus, which is the next book after Exodus, lists all kinds of, of offerings and sacrifices that, that were offered up for various reasons, different types of sins and, and different kinds of fellowship offerings. And, and as I mentioned, on one day a year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would, would enter that Holy of Holies and he would bring blood, blood from these animal sacrifices. And he would sprinkle the blood over the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, over that atonement cover, that, that mercy seat. And what he was doing there was he was making atonement for the sins of the people. Now, for a lot of people today, that, that, this talk of animal sacrifices it just seems so strange to us, right? It just seems so out of the realm of what we're used to. What was going on with, with God off having, asking for these sacrifices of animals that would happen um, in the tabernacle? Well, there's two reasons for those sacrifices that God instituted. The first was that God was making the point that our sin deserves death. It is serious, that our sin deserves, that, that, that we should be those animal sacrifices, really, in a way. And the second point that he was making, though, is that, that there could be a substitute to pay that price of death. That there could be one who could enter the place of those who had sinned, an, an innocent, blemish-free substitute. And that's what happened in Israel, that, that there were these blemish-free animals that served as the substitute, that were atoning for the sins of the people. But one of the things that we see, and we especially see in the book of Hebrews, is that all these animal sacrifices, they were ultimately temporary. And they were pointing ahead to a finished work that God was going to complete, a finished work of atonement, of, 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 of substitution, God's ultimate plan for dealing with our sin. And that leads us to the next point, which is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Um, all these aspects of the meaning of the tabernacle that we just went through, all of them were fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Uh, the first aspect of, of the meaning of the tabernacle was that God was going to dwell with the people. Well, the fulfillment of that was that God dwelt among humanity. In Jesus, that God kind of took it to another level in Jesus. Um, in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Uh, the Greek verb that's translated made his dwelling uh, comes from the same root from the Greek word for tabernacle. So another way of translating that verse would be, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That God, that Jesus kind of became the new tabernacle as God dwelt within him. That he was the word, became flesh. 
Um, In Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus and says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. God dwelt among the people of Israel once again, but this time not in a tent, but actually dwelt among them as a human being. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, kind of gives an illustration of of this. He says that what, what, what Jesus was doing, what God was doing in the incarnation and taking on flesh is kind of like, if you're familiar with the Shakespearean play Hamlet, um, he says it's kind of like the character Hamlet meeting Shakespeare, um, the author who wrote Hamlet. And you think, well, how in the world is that possible? Or how can a character meet the one who wrote the story? Well, the people who met Jesus were actually meeting their author, the author who wrote the story of their lives, the story of the world. How is that possible? Well, Lewis says there's no, the only way for Hamlet to meet Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into the play. If Shakespeare himself writes himself into the play, then Hamlet can meet Shakespeare. And so that's really what Lewis says, is that when the word became flesh, as in Jesus, God was writing himself into our play. That he was writing himself as a human being so that he could interact with us, so we could know him, so that he would, would come to dwell with us. But God came into our world not just... You know, not just to dwell with us, but to actually fulfill those other two elements of the meaning of the tabernacle that we talked about. And the way that he did that was this. Jesus removed the separation between God and humanity, that separation that still existed in the tabernacle. Jesus removed that. And the way he did it was by offering himself as the ultimate sacrifice to pay for sin. Um, which again, all those sacrifices were pointing ahead to. The tabernacle, as we looked at, it revealed the sharp separation between the holy God, sinful humanity. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? If you, if you read the gospel accounts, when Jesus died, something miraculous happened at the temple, which was kind of the continuation of the tabernacle. Remember that veil, that curtain that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies that only the high priest could enter? Well, when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two. And, the, and the, the, the gospel accounts say that it was torn in two from top to bottom. How does a curtain tear from top to bottom? It's only if someone from the top is tearing it. God himself was tearing the curtain. He was tearing it. He was saying, because of Jesus' death, the way is opened. Not, not just the, whole, the high priest can enter this place, but now it's open for all of humanity. The separation has been removed because of Jesus. God was making a way for, for him to dwell with us now with no separation. And that hap- it happened when Jesus offered himself up as the ultimate sacrifice to pay for the sin of the whole world. In that scripture reading that Kai read from, from Hebrews 9, we read this. Jesus, he's talking about here, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, which was the way that, that the high priest entered with the tabernacle. But he says, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus, he is our great high priest, and he is also the sacrifice. He is both. He's the one that offers up himself and his blood to pay once and for all 
for the sin of the whole world, giving us eternal redemption. So the tabernacle is really, it's all pointing ahead to Jesus. Um, As I was studying these chapters this past week, I was blown away by like all of the details in the tabernacle. There are so many parallels in the tabernacle that point ahead to Jesus. Again, I wish we had like a long time where I could just flesh that out for you. If you want to come and talk to me afterwards, I'd love to share that. But, you know, you can only fit so much into a sermon on a Sunday. But there's so much in the tabernacle that's all looking ahead. It's pointing ahead to Jesus as our ultimate tabernacle. But this leads to the last point that I want to talk about today, which is also how the tabernacle is applied to the church. That because of Jesus as our tabernacle, now this idea of the tabernacle can apply actually to us. Now, when I say the church, I'm not talking about a building. Um, In fact, if you use the tabernacle instructions in the Old Testament to to use that as a design for a church, I don't think that would be the best design, to be honest, for an actual church, especially here in Brooklyn, right? Um, We would not have a lot of room for that courtyard or or all these other things. But the meaning of the tabernacle, the meaning of the tabernacle does apply to the church. When I say the church, I'm talking about the people, right? I'm talking about believers in Christ. You see, because Jesus fulfilled the tabernacle, because he came to dwell with us, he removed the separation between God and us, now God dwells among and within the church, within us, believers, And he does that through the Holy Spirit. You see, we kind of become mini tabernacles. As we're walking around, we kind of fulfill the role of what the tabernacle was meant to be. And when we gather together corporately, we are also forming a corporate tabernacle where God dwells through the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about both of those elements in 1 Corinthians Um, In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Paul says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Here again, Paul is using the language of the temple um, because that was, again, sort of the continuation of the tabernacle later on in Israel's history. And what Paul is saying here is he's addressing this to the whole church in Corinth. He says, plural, you yourselves are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in your midst when you are gathered together. Um, And then in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? Here Paul applies it individually. He says that each one of you is also a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple. God dwells in your midst as well. And both of these truths, that God dwells with us corporately and he dwells with us individually, has huge implications for our life as the church and our lives as Christians. As a corporate body, guess what this means? It means that every time we gather together here on a Sunday morning, God is here. And he's here in a unique way. I mean, God is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere present. But there are certain ways that God says, but I will be present in particular ways for you in these certain settings. And one of those settings is when we gather for worship. Um, One of the commentators I was reading this past week put it this way. He says, church is not a place where programs happen. It's not a place to go 
and be noticed by others. It is not a place to meet people. It is not even a place where we listen to sermons. It's true. That's not our primary, that's not what this place is primarily. That's not what we are primarily. But he says this. It is where heaven and earth meet. The church is where heaven and earth meet. For Israel, the tabernacle was a physical place where heaven and earth met, where God was present to his people. And for us, when we are gathered as the corporate church, remember, not the building, but the people, this is the physical place where heaven and earth meets, where God meets us here. And so is weekly corporate worship important? You better believe it is. This is where God meets us. This is where we, where he says, I want to meet with you. Come together as my body, because I will be there in your midst. God is here with us. He wants to encounter us as we gather for worship. He wants to challenge us through his word. He wants to cleanse us. A little bit later, we're going to be partaking of communion as we remember Christ's cleansing. That's what happened at the tabernacle. That's what happens when we gather for worship. He wants to feed us, to strengthen us, and he wants to send us out. And when we're sent out from here, guess what that means? That we are sent into the world as mini tabernacles. That we are sent into the world as individuals that bring God with us in our bodies. That when you are out shopping at the grocery store or at the playground or, or, or at work or at the gym or in your homes, guess what? You bring God with you. He is in your midst. You are there, a mini tabernacle of God's presence in those places. If you are a believer in Jesus, God dwells within you. And one implication of that, that Paul said to the Corinthians, right after he said their bodies were temples of the Holy Spirit, he says this, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We are called to live our lives not for ourselves, but for others, and ultimately for the one who bought us, who bought us through his death on the cross. In a moment, we're going to be singing the song, Sanctuary, which says this, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. That should be our prayer, that we would be a sanctuary of God's presence. Are you honoring God with your body? Are you honoring God with your words, with your actions, with your thoughts? Are you a pure and holy sanctuary set apart for God? The reality is we all know the answer to that question is not always yes. It's not. And just like Israel, we will need to continue to need God's forgiveness as these sanctuaries. We are not completed as sanctuaries. Jesus, thankfully, continues to be our ultimate tabernacle who we can run to when we fail to be a pure and holy sanctuary. And we can know that he has paid for our sin in full. And therefore, as Hebrews 4.16 says, then let us therefore approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.
This morning, we're going to partake of communion, the Lord's Supper. And communion is a time when we run to God's throne of grace for his mercy, for his grace, where we boldly approach it, knowing that we don't deserve it, but Jesus says, come, boldly approach it, run to me for this grace. It's a time when we acknowledge our sin, our failure to be that perfect tabernacle or temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's here that we also experience one other aspect of God dwelling among us, that in communion, he, he's present there with us as he gives himself to us in the bread and the cup. In a mysterious way, just as God chose to dwell in the Holy of Holies at the tabernacle, just as he chose to take on flesh in the person of Jesus, just as he chooses to dwell within us through the Holy Spirit, he also chooses to be present to us in this meal. As he says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Take and eat as, it for, as we receive his forgiveness and nourishment and strength. In this life, guess what? Each one of us is going to continue to be a fixer-upper. We are going to continue to be a fixer-upper until the day that we die or until Christ returns. But God keeps working on us. And that big reveal that we get to see at the end of every episode of Fixer Upper, that's not going to happen until eternity for us. But here's the amazing thing. In the show Fixer Upper, the family doesn't move into the house until it's complete. But for us, God moves into our home even while he's still working on us. He's still present with us even as he's doing that work. He doesn't wait for the big reveal, but we get to have God with us. And one day that work will be complete one day we'll get to experience God dwelling with us in a whole other way as we spend eternity with him in that heavenly tabernacle that he's prepared for us. Oh, what a day that will be. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a God who chooses to dwell among us, with us. Lord, you're not a God that, that remains separate, far away from us, but you've come near to us. You came near by taking on flesh in the person of Jesus and you come near to us, Lord, as we, when we receive your salvation, you come near, even so near that you dwell within us through your Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, for this amazing mystery and miracle that you choose to be among us and with us, even while you're still working on us, even while we still fail and sin, God. We thank you that you are, are working that perfection that will one day be complete where we will be with you for all eternity in that heavenly tabernacle, dwelling, singing your praises forever and ever. And God, so in the midst, of, as we wait for that day, we pray that you would use us as your people to be your presence in this world, to be those mini tabernacles, sanctuaries set apart for you in every interaction that we have with our neighbors, with people around us, God, that we know that you are with us and that you are using us, Lord, to bring your presence into their lives as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.